Good evening and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This is Brian in Buffalo, New York, USA, and with me as always... is Lauren from Swansea in the United Kingdom. How are you, Brian? I, I'm good. Um, i got to ask you a question, Lauren. Has shit started to calm down there since the uh, interview a couple weeks ago? Um, I think I, I think we're all a bit... We're all a bit perplexed because the public did welcome Meghan. We thought she was just what Harry needed and that it was going to be a brilliant new chapter for them and that they would uh, go and work in the Commonwealth together and that, you know, I know that me and my family assumed that they would go and live in Africa and they would, you know, work for the Commonwealth that way. So it was quite sad to hear that she struggled with her mental health. Um, but it what you know, and but the thing with the titles is is crazy as well because Archie will be a prince one day. You know, when Prince Charles is the king, when he inherits the throne as the grandchild of the monarch, Archie and his sister will be a prince and a princess. You know, um, the the titles. He is the Earl of Dumbarton already, his Archie, and he will inherit his father's dukedom in due course. So it, it was quite surprising to hear how they didn't feel that Archie would get the titles that he is entitled to. Um, but the only reason that it changed with um, Princess Charlotte and Prince Louis is that we have never had an instance in, in, in the United Kingdom before or after the union of uh, England, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, where we've had a reigning monarch, an heir, the heir to the heir, and then the heir to the heir to the heir. So, you know, we've never had that before. So, you know, William will be the Prince of Wales, and as the Prince of Wales, um, Charlotte and Louis will be entitled to be called Prince and Princess. Um, but, you know, th- that's why the letter patents were modified, because people live longer and, you know, their dad is going to be king one day and they're, you know, and they're going to be, you know, uh, Charlotte and Louis Wales, you know, as Harry and uh, William are Harry and William Wales. We got people asking why we didn't talk about it a couple weeks ago, like when it was fresh. Because we decided, you know, like, yeah, you know, everyone else is talking about what's the big deal, but it won't go away. No, it won't go away. And um, there is, you know, as the Queen has has pointed out, that it is a private family matter and that, you you know, until they've got to deal with it. And I think, you know, the only thing that the press can do is if they continue to latch onto it is to make it worse because, you know... This this might be to, this might be tomorrow's chip paper for us. I got I got a rather practical question though. Yeah. As an American, I mean, this is this is serious, right? Who gives a shit? <laughs> I think, I think the um, the the biggest significant is that this is all being tied. This is all tied in with their mental health that the way that they felt they were being treated um, was affecting them 
mental mentally no and i and i sympathize 100 percent. you know i'm a big advocate for mental health and and um support of mental health and, and i'm not making light of that but you know it's kind of 2021 and do we really give that much of a shit about royalty anymore well i think from a from from a lot of people's perspective we've sort of removed the royalty out of it and we felt and we've spoken about it you know if um you know if um you suddenly ended up on a talk show you know your brother ended up on a talk show and he basically was saying that um your family had allowed them to continue to be in a toxic situation and hadn't done anything to help them yeah but if that happened that's what we that's yeah but if that happened as soon as the next show came on everyone would forget about it yeah but no but what i'm thinking about is not the effect that it has on the public on the viewership that's watching it but how would it affect your family i mean you'd be embarrassed that your brother couldn't you know that he he felt that he had to do that and if you've got any grandparents how would they feel well i'd be embarrassed first off because i don't think my brother could go an entire interview without farting um that would embarrass me but I have one so, more one more question about this before we yeah. move on to like other like real topics. This is a real topic. I mean, somebody has basically said that they were in a situation that made made them feel that they didn't want to exist anymore. I mean, it's very serious. And well, that's very horrific, serious. But, but why should that shock anybody when you're dealing with a royal family that refers to everybody else in the world as commoners? I don't think that they do. I mean. I don't think that's a word that they use. I mean, if they do, they do, and it doesn't really bother me. But you know, I, I think that the you know what people are concerned about is that the the Queen has a long um, has a long history of service to the country and the Commonwealth, and they just feel that it uh, that it was not done at the best moment in time. That you know, people have lost, you know people have lost their entire families to covid they've lost their job and because they've lost their job they've lost their house you know people are, are very are struggling everywhere and and it's good to see somebody high profile speak out about their mental health i'm not taking that away from no them, that's that's but, very important and i'm not making light of that do, at all but in regards to the fact you know some people are going to see it as as two rich people moaning well, I think the the, the, you know, the, the racist just... allegations are unforgivable. Yes, and that's why you know it. Uh, uh, you know, the whole country's taking that quite personally because that's sort of not just you know our, our royal families are reflection on us, and um, and that is just that is unforgivable. And you know, I'm just thinking, you know, was it? I, I guess you know you. You can try and rationalise it and ask, was it, you know, them hypothesising? Like, if I had a child, they'd probably ask me, do you think it'll have red hair? Which would make, which would upset me, because it'd be like, well, what does it really matter? You know, and it, was it just an insensitive comment, or was it indicative of something more sinister, which is which is quite worrying and puzzling, and it is, it's also going to make people think that, you know, that the whole country's like that. Well, I'm going to gonna say this right now. Uh then this will be the absolute last we talk about it on this episode at least you know if they want to talk about it you know harry megan you can give us a call we'll bring you on the show they're not gonna come on this show they might nah why not 
I wish them all the best, and I hope that you know they looked ha- they looked happy and they looked healthy, and that's all you can ask for. And I wish them every luck. And but it's just it, it's 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 a sad situation. Not you know not just for us as a country, you know, having those allegations made against our monarchs, but against our royal family rather than the monarch because they have quite they have categorically stated that it wasn't um, the Queen or um, the, the Duke of Edinburgh that made those comments um, but it, it's sad for them as a family as well you don't want to think of anybody's family falling apart and it makes you think about you know I'm the oldest sibling and if my sister felt so frustrated with me that she ended up going on a talk show to talk about it no at least I have the right of reply I could reply to the, the accusation she's making but William can't Kate can't they're not allowed to they're not allowed to reply to this well, they can. It's 2021. They can reply no, if they want. No. No. They would be <laughs> advised against it. They, they, they would be would advised, advised against, against it. it. And, and it's just, it's just, you know, there are going to, and I, I think they are aware of it because uh, 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 Oprah brought it up, but, you know, there are going to be lasting implications, not just to status and power and titles, but to, you know, it's his dad at the end of the day. It's his brother at the end of the day. And to say that they're trapped, you know, has has implications. Because that means that his nieces and nephews are trapped. We're all trapped. It's a rat yeah. trap, baby. So, yeah. It's just very sad that they couldn't speak about this as a family and deal with it as a family. That they felt that the, that the only way to deal with it was to do it publicly. Wow, now you're bringing me down. Let's talk about other things. You were on Quincy's show. I was, yeah, talking about um, uh, talking about uh, International Women's Day. Talking about the ladies. Yeah. Not like that, Brian. <laughs> and I didn't think I didn't think you'd listen because I know Sunday is quite your is is a busy day for you. I do a lot on Sundays, but hey, you know when you're on Quincy's show, I gotta listen. Plus, I never um, know so if you're gonna say bad to things about me. I wouldn't say bad things about you. Eh, put you and Quincy together, you might. I'd say them to your face. That's true. I <laughs> know oh, he's got. We spoke before the show uh, privately, um, and he's got so much love for you. He adores you. Oh, I love Quincy. He's one of the greatest guys in the world. He is. He's so sweet. He is the best. Did he tell you the story about how I got him in the backseat of the car with Bert Sugar? And that sounds no. really sketchy. <laughs> it's you, Brian. Of course it's sketchy. Bert Sugar was a very famous writer and um, sports historian and boxing historian. And uh, I'd become quite close and good friends with him over the years, me and my brother through the Boxing Hall of Fame and he was one of Quincy's idols and Quincy came up to the hall one year and we introduced him to Bert and the next thing I know the four of us are tooling around town going to try to find some place to hang out and Quincy's in the back seat with his idol just all giddy because you know we put him in the car with Bert oh you like making dreams come true I do I'm like Laverne and Shirley yeah yeah, and you've got to make Theo's dream come true. He hasn't forgotten. No, of course not. And my dreams are going to come true in a couple weeks. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's a little, that's a teaser for an episode coming up in a couple weeks, folks, but. uh, Oh, yeah, I thought it was about your book, but then I was thinking, oh, no, it's that. The love of my life will be on in a couple weeks. But we're not going to talk about that Yeah, you know, at one point I said I was going to. I wonder if you'll be creeped out by that. Maybe not. Maybe we shouldn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Because Brian will have a Tom Jones impersonator who is ordained to join us on the show under the pretense of being... um, you know, what, what, what is your life like as a Tom Jones impersonator? And that poor woman will be trapped. <laughs> she won't know what hit her. <laughs> well, that, that is true. No, um, it's going to be fun. And uh, stay tuned, regardless. people, for just a couple weeks, and you'll find out who the special secret guest is. But uh, other than that, Lauren, and other than, you know, troubles in the malice in the palace, what else is going on there in Wales? Well, we're slowly starting to open up, um, but emphasis is slow. You know, it's going to be um, the summer before everything is back to how it was. And then even then, they're they're threatening threatening us with a third wave or a fourth wave or a millionth wave. I don't know how many waves you've had right now. All I know is that you said the emphasis is on slow and, you know, the age I'm at now everything is slow for me except the time in between me eating and having to go to the bathroom that seems to be rapidly getting faster i mean you're not that old i'm ancient no you're not no i feel it though i think it's this you know being locked up for an entire year uh with covid well i'm well the thing is 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 you can't even it's not like you can um you're not going into the office so you can't escape work it's like you work and you sleep and you live all in the same place yeah that's about it and like the place i sit to watch like my baseball games and hockey games and everything is 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 the same place i sit to work it's very weird but is it nice though not having to go into the office um yes and no i mean i'm not gonna lie i miss the people i work with and you know, I miss seeing their smiling, happy faces. But at the same point, I uh, I love being able to, like, walk around in pajamas and drink coffee while working. I mean, I can drink coffee in the office, too. So I guess the pajamas is what I should have focused on. Yeah. And I can watch and, Netflix and, uh, in the background while I'm at work. Which reminds me, you're... have you watched Murder Among the Mormons? Yes, I have. That oh, awesome. that's great, isn't it? It was really. I, 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 um, I thought, oh gosh, what's this going to be like? Because uh, when we, when we, uh, when I did my GCSEs, we uh, we touched upon the Mormon religion a little bit um, in our studies, and I thought, oh gosh, that will take me back. And I, I, and I didn't expect it to be as intriguing as it is. And it's just so fascinating to know that they're so obsessed with, not obsessed, that's the wrong word, but they're so passionate about their history and where they come from. I think, you know, they're the only religion that I know of that is like that. Well, because they're they're so new. The good and the bad. Yeah. Um, So, but I... 
No, I think it, I think it was the the open-mindedness because if you presented them with something that changes the narratives, which they were, they were a little bit cautious about it. But then they were accepting of it and they were analysing it and they were discussing it and they were writing papers on it. I know those papers had a small circulation because it was um, very rare that you would have that. Like if you brought something up, uh, I uh, think they were suppressing it more than anything. Yeah, but still, for them to have that conversation amongst themselves you know, is the elders weren't sort of going, we can never let anybody know about this. Oh, I think they were. I think they absolutely were trying to keep it. That's why they were spending so much money to get this stuff. And they were discussing it among themselves to think what to do. But the important thing is, as an autograph collector, that stuff scared the shit out of me. Yeah, you can only really trust them when they're in person, to be fair. Yeah, but so many of the people I collect are people who've been dead for years, so can't get those in person. Um... I, like I, I, I wouldn't necessarily think. The thing is, though, is when you collect anything, you have to do it because you like it. Oh, but murder among the Mormons, people! You gotta watch this. It's not what I thought it was going in when I saw like the title. I thought it was gonna be like a no, guy slaughtering but, his wives, but it's not. No, and it, it was it was really intriguing, and and you know I I still think the fact that they were having some discussion i i know that you will disagree with me but there was you know they were publishing um articles and because articles and um papers on, on the topics of the of the stuff they were receiving and the fact that he managed to con everybody and that his processes were that good as well that they're like yeah we don't know if there are any more fakes out there and we can never tell that was scary <laughs> What was really scary was the end when they showed all the pictures of him through the years and he never looked the same twice. But then you could say the same thing for Ted Bundy. He never looked the same twice. Yeah, but there was one time, one of those pictures, he looked just like David Koresh. <laughs> and I was like, okay, what's going on here? Mm. I've looked the same for the past 30 years. Well, yeah, but you're not in prison, are you? Well, I mean, I, I think... I think if you were in that, because it must be, you know, incarceration, any sort of um, enclosure is stressful. It's not what we're designed for. It's going to age you and it's going to like have an effect on you. Yeah, Manson looked different all the time. So, so. But Murder, Murder Amongst the Mormons, people should watch it. It's really good. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot better than that Tiger King shit you were talking about for months. That was just a bit of fun. I mean, that was the crazy side of America. Yeah. But you you have to admit, you, you like to joke that I made that every straight man is one tiger and a bag of meth away from marrying Joe Exotic. I, can I tell you a secret? That guy wasn't straight. You're not. <laughs> he wasn't straight. I don't know. It, it's just, it was, it, was, it was crazy times. And I only watched it because my, um, my dog Ruby was ill. She later passed away, so I have that memory of bonding with her over Tiger King. Tiger King is a bonding exercise, huh? Well, my dog was very seriously ill. She was hemorrhaging. That's true. Yeah, that was so, that was sad. Oh gosh, it was. It went on for ages as well. Um, so did Tiger they, King. They, I watched it in one afternoon because she would she was sleeping on me and I didn't want to move because she wasn't very well. You binged watch Tiger King. Yeah, because because I, I literally I wasn't. 
It was first lockdown at the very start of first lockdown when everybody was still happy because <laughs> we didn't have to work anymore. How did you re- re- keep any brain cells while binge-watching Tiger King? Because it, I, I, I watched it for the hilarity. I mean, nobody I think every it hour that passed would sap your intelligence just that much more. <laughs> And also as well, I mean, you've got to keep watching it after Sunday goes about, you know, saying, I didn't kill my husband. I'd have to put him in a meat grinder. And they actually do have a meat grinder. And he wouldn't fit in my meat grinder. And I'm just like, oh, no, you fed him to the cats, didn't you? I mean, I binge watched 24-hour Three's Company Marathon before. And I'm pretty proud of that. Well, I was kind of glad that um, Disney was were releasing WandaVision every week because i would have just binged watched that i mean disney everybody does it complains right. and everybody complains that the first two episodes are just um like vintage sitcom but it's amazing because i do like american vintage sitcoms yeah it's a fun show and i like the first two episodes the best actually they made me laugh how far have you got i'm up to date on it oh you're up to date yeah what about that song Agatha's song was amazing. I uh, I, I like the show. Um, I didn't think I would because you know I didn't really give a shit about the Avengers films. I know that's horrible to say, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Did I just um, lose nerd cred? I don't know. Um, I mean, I I always enjoyed them because they were always a lot of fun to work them. Working in the cinema, um, I, I miss that about, you know, because you'd get everybody dressing up like once when the Avengers came out. Um, they had Deadpool and Spider-Man and I spent too much time trying to get dead, trying to find them both together and make them um, m- make them put their arm around each other. So I could tell my area manager that we were the best cinema because we had made Deadpool and Spider-Man friends. <laughs> well, on that note. I think, you know what's funny, we, we've talked about Tiger King and, and the Royals and WandaVision and all this stuff, and, and our actual topic tonight is about, um, you know, one of the 20th century's most um, enigmatic philosophers, so it's kind of a weird um, weird ramblings before we talk yeah, about our considering, topic. considering we could talk about much worse. That's very true. Yeah. We have. <laughs> we have, yeah. We have. But I think we better go on to our <clears throat> Today in History. Go on then, Brian. All right. Well, mine, because, you know, Today in History, March 22nd, 1903. Tickets first go on sale for the New York Highlanders, later to become the New York Yankees. First time ever tickets went on sale for the New York Yankees was Today in History, back in 1903. That's great. Yeah. You know, Lauren, did you know I like baseball? Just a little bit. Just a little. Just a little bit. Is it my turn now? <laughs> <laughs> Why, did you just wake up from that nap after me talking about baseball? Yeah, my micro nap, yeah. Every time you go baseball, I'm like, ah, not off. Yeah, yeah, it's your turn. Go ahead. Okay, um, on the 22nd of March, 1349, townspeople of Fulda, Germany, massacre Jews, blaming them for the Black Death. Were they right? They were wrong. Oh. Because 
Yeah. But it, it just kind of struck me as ironic is that now, even now, with all our modern science and technology, we still blame a group of people for the plague. Yeah. And how weird that Germany would go after people blaming them for things. Some things never change. Yeah. And I shouldn't say that because, like, Germany's, like, good now. I liked it when there were two Germanys. Remember when there were two Germanys? Vaguely, I was very young. And then we tore down the wall, and Hasselhoff got on the wall and sang, and West Germany was like, uh, nah, fuck it, we'll stay over here if that's what your entertainment is. Actually, East Germany. What the hell is Germany's obsession with Hasselhoff? I don't get it. Well, he's going out with a Welsh girl, so he has been seen in Swansea. Oh, you, you, you've been out. in the presence of the Hoff? Yeah. Are you stalking the Hoff? No, he, 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 he has a Welsh girlfriend who is from Swansea, and she was she used to go out on nights out in Swansea. So the Hoff hangs out in your hometown. Yeah. Lauren from lives in the hood time. of the Hoff. Lauren, you just, like, got so much cooler. I know, I am so cool. Do you remember the show Knight Rider? Um, I've seen Knight Rider, yeah. Now, what's really messed up about that show is if you go back and watch the opening credits, which is, like, the opening theme, the narrator voiceover when he says Knight Rider sounds like he's, um, <clears throat> yeah, um, pleasing himself. You hear that, like, weird electronic music, and also you hear, Night Rider. It's, like, really disturbing. I think that's just you. Night Rider. What's even funnier... If that's not the... If that's not the Easter egg, I'm suing. No. But what's even funnier is if you watch it uh, it with the... Um, uh, in Spanish, like, you know, on DVDs, you can, like, watch it with, like, the, the Spanish language version. Yeah. The name of the show wasn't Knight Rider. And the narrator doesn't sound like he's making an O face when he says it. It's like this upbeat music and you hear this voice go, El Otto Magnifico. I'm a magnificent automobile. Yeah, it went from Knight Rider to El Otto Magnifico. It's fucking hilarious. Anybody out there who doesn't believe me, get a DVD and try it. You know who's going to try it if they listen to this podcast? Who? Neil. Oh, absolutely. And he'll call up going, El Otto Magnifico! At least I hope so. I don't want to hear him do the other one. <laughs> You'd probably do it as well. <laughs> That's true. But I think um, it's time to let you know, and well, let the audience know that uh, our episode tonight that we're going to begin momentarily is about a a figure that, um, I don't know, I think he should be far more well-known than he is. I mean, he's pretty famous to, like, a select group of people. Do you mean nerds? No, no, not nerds, but people that are really into esoteric philosophy or um, occultism or... Masonic history, and he was a philosopher from the 20th century who lived pretty much the entire 20th century, he lived to be in his 90s, whose name is Manly P. Hall. 
And we got the CEO and president of the society that Manly P. Hall founded coming on to discuss the man, his work, his views, and even the wacky stuff. So what do you think I fire up the magic interview box? Please do. It's the magic interview box. All right, and let's flip the switch and talk about Manly P. Hall. Lauren, check it out. This magic interview box is working perfectly again. I know. We're having such good luck with it in this pandemic. What's crazy is the interview box is so magic today that we're going to talk about magic. Sort of. Because I went and I got a doctor. But not the kind of doctor that was taking my teeth out. Different kind of doctor. Doctor. still has to happen there, Brian. I know, I know. But uh, this doctor (laughs) is going to blow everybody's mind, okay? Not only because of the top, but because of the pronunciation of his name. As we've discovered... You can pronounce it about 20 different ways. I'm going to go with Slayer. Doctors say it's Salier or Sailor, but I'm going Slayer. So, Dr. Slayer is, I believe, are you still the president of the um, of the, of the research center, correct? President and CEO. See? Yep. See, see, see that, Lauren? We're talking badassery here. And we are going to be discussing one of the... I don't know if I would say, no, I wouldn't say controversial, obviously, but I would say one of the um, most enigmatic 20th century figures. Yes. Um, Manly P. Hall. And this is a research center that was pretty much founded by him and by his his research. And, see, Manly's not around anymore because he'd be, I think, what, 140 now? <laughs> Uh, let's see, he was born in 1901, so he'd be 120. 120. Yeah. I was off by 20 years, but he's not around anymore at 120. But we got the next best thing, because is coming on to talk all about Manly <laughs> P. Hall. And Lauren, isn't that exciting? All right, Dr. Slayer, or let's go with Sally. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be proper pronunciation. How are you? Hey, Brian, I'm great. Um... Living in Los Angeles in the middle of the pandemic and the death of democracy, or the near-death experience of democracy, <laughs> but um, PRS is is uh, apparently needed more than ever because lots of people have turned to us. They're buying Mr. Hall's publications and uh, attending our events. So um, you know, uh, there's good and bad with everything. I'm looking forward to the next paradigm, though. <laughs> Yeah, it's it has been an interesting time, and I, I I understand people flocking to Manly Hall now. Um, what's interesting about uh, Mr. Hall? What I find really fascinating about people turning to Manly Hall now, which doesn't surprise me in the least, actually. Mm-hmm. But He's one of those characters that I think, if you know who he is, a lot of people have a base knowledge. And then there's a lot of people who don't know who he is, yet he's had such a huge impact on, you know, American philosophy over a hundred years. And a lot of people, when they start going down the path of him, they really go down the path. So, can you give, um, (laughs) 
the the average listener who might not know who Manly Hall was, just a, a kind of a brief, I know it's very tough to do, but a brief overview of this man in, in his life. Oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, in fact, I will tell you that um, I have been in higher education most of my professional life studying literature, philosophy, and religion. And I didn't, I hadn't heard of Manly Hall to PRS. And I think there's a parable to that in that Manly Hall himself is esoteric. He's hidden to history and to academia, especially. Um, so he was born in 1901 in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. Um, he never knew his father. His mother uh, fled once he was born, uh, she, she fled to Santa Monica. So it fell to his grandmother to, to raise him. And she was uh, an itinerant. Uh, I don't she was homeless, but I just mean she moved around a lot. And apparently, I don't think uh, has been made of this, the influence of his grandmother on his life. Because she she was very much into Rosicrucianism, theosophy, esoterica in general, and she planted those seeds in Manly. So um, she she is raising him. They're they're running around. Not running around. I don't mean to say that. Moving all over. It, it's the nineteen teens, and you know. It's a different world then. So can you imagine uh, a grandmother trying to raise a young son? Especially in a nomadic style. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Just trying to find work. Uh, She apparently was an amazing woman. Uh, Suffered no fools. Very um, self-educated as he was. So anyway, they, they find themselves in New York and Manley finds himself at 18 and 19, working on Wall Street. (laughs) Like you do. Uh, He hates it. Yeah. Yeah. He hates it. Um, There's a, there's a Herman Melville story, short story called Bartleby the Scrivener. And I always think of this, of this Melville story when I tell this story about Mr. Hall, because uh, Bartleby in the story is just someone, he's a clerk. And he just says, anytime anyone asks him to do something, he says, I prefer not to. <laughs> and it drives everybody insane because they don't know what to do with someone. I am going to try that on my girlfriend from now on. <laughs> you totally should. Yeah, that's the so, thing. Uh, in, in fact, Wall Street. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, well, while they're in New York while he's working on Wall Street, his grandmother dies. Now, he's 18 when this happens, Um, and I lost my own mother um, at 20, and, and, you know, it's not a good time. You you haven't had enough life experience or education or whatever, just maturity to move through this um, in in a way that doesn't that isn't detrimental to your well-being but this is manly home so he's 18 so what does he do he gets on a train in new york city and he comes to los angeles for a for a reconnection to his mother who is in santa monica but she too is now involved in theosophy 
Madame Blavatsky's um, institution and and heritage. And so Manley comes to Los Angeles. And this, I think, is the most important event. In Los Angeles, he begins to flourish at 18. So there's a church downtown called the Church of the People uh, that meets in Trinity Auditorium in downtown L.A. Uh, this is a church that, um, that traces its philosophical, theological lineage to Ralph Waldo Emerson. So it's not your typical church. Manley goes there, he's appointed minister right away, and he begins lecturing, and it takes off. Uh, he's a compelling speaker. Uh, I always like to say he was an autodidact in polymath, because I don't get to say those words very often. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to make you spell them if you say they're, them again. Right, and they're good words. I love these words. So all that means is he taught himself everything. Uh he read everything. He remembered everything. And by everything, I mean texts that I hadn't even heard of, esoteric texts, as well as the exoteric texts, the texts that we all know, like or Bhagavad Gita, um, or, or anything else, uh, philosophy, Plato, etc. So he had this amazing confluence of, of talents, ability to read and remember, to teach himself, and to deliver in this compelling way. So he he attracts a lot of following. Now, 1920s Los Angeles, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of people out there saying a lot of things. I'm, I'm thinking of Amy Simple McPherson, sister Amy, who has her own story. She, but she used Holly, the new Hollywood techniques in her sermons. But Manley Hall sets himself apart because he's done his homework. He's read everything. He's remembered everything. And this is all in his head. And he can reach for it at any time. So, you know, if he, if he needs to drop some knowledge about ancient Buddhism and its relation to Taoism, he can do that. He doesn't need to stop and look things up like I do. He can do it. It's right there. So to to finally <laughs> shorten this story a little bit, um, a, a couple, uh, a mother and daughter in Santa Monica uh, who lived on an oil field heard him speak and said, look, we've got some money. Let us be your patrons. And so they, they finance some trips around the world for him. And mainly they finance the building of the Philosophical Research Society in Los Feliz, which is uh, where I am right now. <clears throat> and it's right next to Hollywood. And so that the Philosophical Research Society begins in 1934 with the mission of providing uh, the world's wisdom to all who seek it, regardless of where it comes from or when. So we might be doing modern psychology, or we might be doing um, uh, ancient African, sub-Saharan African myths, or we might be doing Francis Bacon. Um, you know, it's this is the genius of Manley Hawes. He didn't pick a path. He said everybody's on a path, and I, I want reach them where they are. 
And so the Philosophical Research Society is still going today with that same mission. Yeah, Manly is, first off, such a badass name to begin with. <laughs> right. Manly, Manly, Manly Hall. Hall. I mean, that's pretty cool. But I came across right. him, God, I was probably in my late teens when I'd first oh, wow. heard a reference to him. And, you know, I, I think he was mentioned along the lines of, of it, it was in regards to his most famous work, The Secret Teachings of All Ages. Indeed. And I, I think he was compared to Crowley in the thing that I had read. Oh. <laughs> okay. And I was like, that seems <laughs> weird. So I looked up, looked him up a little bit, and this was before the age of the internet. Yeah. Right. And I found out that he was nothing like Crowley. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. But what I discovered was, I, I think people made the connection because, you know, he would discuss magic and, you know, yeah. esoteric yeah. things. But right. that doesn't mean you're, you know, Aleister Crowley, obviously. <laughs> but what I found fascinating about reading about him was, you know, like you said, he got to Los Angeles around 1919, 1920. This yeah. was before the Hollywood boom. You know, it Ho- was. Hollywood yeah. was just starting to kind of become Hollywood. Yep. And it was also in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Or kind just just at, just at the tailing end of that pandemic. I don't blame him for the Black Sox World Series scandal, though. I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> that had nothing to Thank do with you. Manly. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he gets to L.A. He gets a reputation, a following, and I started reading about, and this was, like I said, before the Internet, because the wonderful thing about the Internet, people, is a ton of his lectures are available on YouTube. Right. You know, you can go actually listen to Manly Hall's lectures. And not re-recordings yeah. of them. I'm talking, you can actually listen to his lectures. Yeah, pops and crackles in them, yeah. I love it. Um, yeah. Th- th- that's my own personal ASMR, to use, like, trendy uh, internet lingo. <laughs> um, oh, nice. He, from what I was reading at the time, now you can clarify this more, because obviously I've never seen, I've seen one of his lectures, because there's one video of it. He right. wouldn't have notes. No. He would go and deliver these hour, hour and a half lectures that are really in depth and really, you know, how should I say, um, deep, <laughs> I guess would be the most common way to say it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's With a good no word. notes, yeah. no nothing, just kind of like staring off into space, almost like it was possession. possession. Was he total photographic memory or was he just that De- knowledgeable? Right. I, I don't know for a fact he had a photographic memory. I've just never seen anybody do this. This is a man, I'm not even sure he graduated high school. He has, my predecessor, Obadiah Harris, used to say, um, Manley didn't have any credentials, he just had wisdom. So, whatever it was, maybe it was just for learning, but I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Uh, He had a photographic memory, but that's not enough, right? It's one thing to have all this in your head. It's another to be able to teach it, to deliver it, as you say, in such a powerful way. And I, you know, I stand or I used to stand on Manley Hall's stage and deliver lectures and uh, honestly don't know how he did it. 
because you're absolutely right. There are no notes. There are no pauses. There are no mmms or ah like I do. Um, there's no there's no halting delivery at all. It's like you say. It's like it's just like flowing through him. And this is what I love too. He he would speak for ninety minutes. And on one of those videos, I, I actually saw this. You can see him glance at his watch. And I'm like, okay. I'm, I'm so relieved to see that because I didn't want him to have this innate sense of time, too. So he glances at his watch. Boom. 90 minutes. We're done. He's, and he says something like, well, that's about all for today. No questions. He walks off the stage. It, it was it was an amazing experience, I'm sure. One that I haven't had, but many people did. That, so essentially, he dropped the mic before anybody dropped the mic. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I will from now on. Yeah. I mean, he he's such a, um, he's such a hard person to put into any box because... Yes. What do you call him? Do you call him a philosopher? Do you call him a lecturer? Do you call him an educator? Do you call him a, a student? Do you call him mm-hmm. a, a guru? I mean, you could put any of these labels on him, but none of them really seem to fit. Uh, that's exactly right. In fact, when I write him, uh, or, or speak about him, I end up use, uh, doing what you just did. I use a number of descriptors because he is not one thing. He's a scholar without academic credentials. He's probably one of the greatest lecturers, American lecturers of the 20th century. Um, He's certainly one of the greatest teachers of the 20th century. And he is the the person, uh, as you said earlier on, he is the person to bring esoterica to the world. And, And that's that's an interesting thing in itself because esoteric means hidden. And so he wants to reveal these things that have been hidden. And I, and I don't mean hidden in a sinister sense, although some of that happens. I just mean, like me, I, I never encountered these texts. They wouldn't let us study this stuff in, you know, a graduate program in religion. It wasn't considered legitimate. And he showed that it was not only way to be in the world so this is not some uh, I almost said esoteric this is not some uh, arcane or weird study this is practical and he that was his genius he could have done the you know the high academic well you know you won't understand this but let me see if I can try to explain it no every single lecture was was designed to give you something to do at the end of it. Not just to think about, but to do. Genius. And I'm glad you actually referenced religion because I think a lot of people, when they think of Manly Hall, if they do, like I said, he's, and like you said, he seems to have slipped through the cracks of time. I mean, people don't seem to know the name now. But when they right. do, and they get a base knowledge, um, it's not unusual to see people compare him to Crowley or things, because of the esoteric things, right. of the magic. Right. But he right. had just as many lectures about religion, and yeah. society, and Christianity, yeah. and the Bible, and you know, mainstream religions, and 
fringe religions. Yeah. But it wasn't just religion and philosophy. I mean, he talked about everything. <laughs> everything. Yep. Um, there's, there's an essay. Uh, one of the things I love is going through his journals, uh, which he did from 1934 to 1990. Quarterlies, mostly. And so I love to just go in uh, like a, a couple of months ago, I was looking for something, and I found this essay called Psychological Advertising, written in 1960. So it's in one of the 1960 journals. And so, okay, think about that. 1960, what are we talking about? We're talking about madmen. We're talking about Madison Avenue, Edward Bernays, and the growth of marketing as we know it today. Manley's right there. He's right there. And he's like, mm, this looks a little sketchy. We might want to watch out for this. <laughs> 1960. Well, of course, he was right. Uh, psychological advertising is, um, is really problematic and even more so now in the world of social media and data. Yeah, he saw that coming. There are some of he his did. lectures where he predicts that. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's intense. Um, yeah. But he never does it as in, like, I predict this. He's not Criswell. Okay? No. It's more like, <laughs> this is the way we're evolving, and this is what's going to happen. And you got to watch out for this, people, because it'll swallow you up. Exactly. Exactly right. No, um, he, was, he was very much interested in astrology, but he, he never used it in the predictive mode, as you say. Uh, it was always about aligning things better. Like it, when he dedicated the, the Philosophical Research Society, he studied the charts to make sure it was a, an opportune time, that kind of approach. Yeah, so there, there is, and, and you know, no offense to you or anybody else, there is that hokey element to him. Oh, yeah. Of and You can't deny it. I mean, the early 30s. He being in Los Angeles, and, you know, he was a striking-looking person. Yes. Um, yes. Very tall for the time, too. Oddly yeah. shaped, though, so you don't see many pictures of him from uh, chest down. Apparently, he was very weirdly shaped. But yeah. it didn't take long for, you know, Hollywood to, like, put him in some films and do some Manly Hall stuff. Sadly, it all seems to surround the hokey um, astrology stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, and and I'm glad we're elaborating on <clears throat> on hokey because he actually did a film. Uh, I think it was with Warner Brothers called uh, When Were You Born or something like that. Yeah. And, and it's about astrology. And he was the, the writer. And he stars in it. And so if you watch it, it's on YouTube. Some people love it, and and I don't, but a lot of people love it. But And I don't because of what you're talking about. It, the opening of the film is him trying to do a lecture on astrology, but it's stiff and uninteresting and, and kind of hokey. And... If you read about this, you'll you'll see he had the the quintessential Hollywood problem is that people gave him notes <laughs> and said, "Oh, don't do it this way, do it this way." And so he comes off as 
very unmanly Hall. He comes off as kind of hokey in this film. But he, he as you're right, he made good friends with Bella Lugosi, um, Burl Lives, Elvis. Um, he was always around those people. Uh, Aldous Huxley, well, that's not Hollywood, but Aldous Huxley would come to dinner and stuff like that. Yeah, and Elvis um, loved him. <laughs> I know Elvis yeah. tried to get Priscilla into him, and she was like, yeah, I, I'm not digging it. But she was a yeah. kid. <laughs> she was. Uh, Ronald Reagan, when he was governor, or when he was running for governor, I think, would, would come by. Because, um, you know, Nancy, he and Nancy were very much um, into astrology. And uh, so he would come by to consult with Mr. Hall. I do want to hit on one more thing with Lugosi because uh, I'm a Lugosi fanatic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've been working on a biography of Lugosi for a while. Now, really? there was this whole made-up Hollywood story about Manly Hall hypnotizing Lugosi for a film. <laughs> do you know anything about this that, story? Uh, that Well, that's true. That is, in fact, true. Because, well, I, you know, true, but... Here's what I can say. We have photographs of Mr. Hall hypnotizing Lugosi before a scene. We have a few of them. Now, if that that could be some sort of, you know, Hollywood effect thing, like, oh, let's show him doing this. But uh, for, from what I could tell, that's, that is true. Yeah, it was to uh, make Lugosi feel claustrophobic for a scene. And, yeah, that's uh, right. It's a, it's a really fun little piece of Hollywood lore because if it's true, right. Lugosi bought into Hall hook, line, and sinker. Yep. And if it's true, I think Hall was having more fun with it than taking it seriously. I can see that. He, he was, uh, apparently, uh, this is another unknown thing about him, is that he was a jokester. Um not so much a prankster, but more of a punter and, and you know, a one-liner type guy. Stefan Heller, uh, who, who worked with him, uh, always points this out, that Mr. Hall was fun, uh, which does not come across in the videos. No. You know, actually it does. There's a couple times in the videos where you can yeah. almost hear a tongue-in-cheekness to him. You're right. You're right. I was just thinking that after I said it, there are there are these moments, and he's got a little glint in his eye now and then. He does. Yeah, you're right. Um, it, it's not a prominent feature of his presentation humor, no. <laughs> but it, you're right. It is there. Now, his most famous work, as I referenced earlier, is probably you know the book that's still in print to this day. Oh yeah. Unfortunately, not in the same way it was originally produced. <laughs> Actually, I, I can break some news on that with you, uh, Brian, if you like. Yes, please. Uh, breaking news from the Philosophical Research Society. Um, the brilliant and wonderful art publisher Passion is in the process right now of reprinting the original 1928 edition of The Secret Teachings of All Ages. And they tell us that it will be out this fall. Really? Now, is it going to be $1,000? Right? Wouldn't, right? So you do know Tashin. This is a, a publishing group, um, just amazing um, publishing group, that has a book on Elvis that's $55,000. Uh, 
And um, I, I want I keep wanting to ask them, how do you deliver that? That's not a FedEx kind of delivery, I would think. Anyway, no, they're saying they can do this for $200 retail. And um, what we've been selling, the previous edition that we had printed, uh, it's about 20 years old. Uh, we're actually sold out of it. And we were retailing it for $225. Um, so Cashin's saying it should be right around that. And it will include a companion text. So, for example, I've written an essay in there called Manly Hall in Los Angeles that gets into some of the stuff we talked about at the beginning. And we're including what they call ephemera, which is, you know, souvenir, not souvenirs, but uh, letters to subscribers, photographs, uh, artifacts, things like that, that will be in a companion text that comes with the secret teachings of all ages. And I should say, for, for anyone who doesn't know, the secret teachings of all ages is not a typical book. No. It's uh, thir 13 by 19, uh, some 400 pages that includes um, original prints by J. Augustus Knapp. So this is a big book, which is what its nickname is, the big book. Now, Lauren, I got to bring you in here because you, yeah. Lauren is quite the book collector and loves books. Right. How many copies are you going to be ordering of this? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I'm still going to be in, um, in, in trouble for ordering a special edition of Dracula that has been going around <laughs> on Kickstarter. So. Nice. nice. That is something that I would be interested in. Oh, very much so. I know, Lauren, are you familiar with the secret teachings at all? No, I, no, I have to say that um, I only know um, about Manly P. Hall passingly because of his, um, because of his connection, you know, to actors like Bela Lugosi and Elvis when I did film studies. So it's, it's, he's not a person um, that I know too well, and that's why I've been so interested in listening tonight. Oh, Dr. Slayer. You are gonna. You are about to make Lauren completely drool. Okay, you gave a little bit of an explanation about the size of the book and the prints that's in it, but kind of give a little more detail because it is what he's probably most well known for. And I guarantee oh, yeah. you're going to sell a copy of this book to Lauren when you describe this. <laughs> well, sure. Um, so it's um, like I said, it's it's kind of folio size. It's thirteen by nineteen. It was created um, especially in the 20s, um, but it, he had to get some uh, special publisher from San Francisco. And, you know, the, just the process of printing in the 20s was a, was a whole different enterprise, uh, hard to even imagine. Um, so it has, it has essays. Basically, it's... it's subtitle is an encyclopedic let me see if i can get this right it's it, you know it's 1920 so it's got like three titles and they're all very long um an encyclopedic outline of masonic kabbalistic rosicrucian and symbolic philosophy that's actually the title <laughs> uh and then it's like being a secret teachings of all ages right and so there are it is an encyclopedia. In fact, that's how you should 
you should look at it because if you sit down and read it, first of all, you're going to have trouble lifting it. <clears throat> it's so big and laden with uh, images and text and wisdom. It's really better seen as uh, as an encyclopedia kind of reference work. So you're going to have uh, strange mythological animals. You're going to have the Kabbalah. You're going to have ancient mystery religions, like the Eleusinian mysteries. You're going to have um, basic symbolism of Christianity and its esoteric meanings. Um, all Egypt. We're going to go to Egypt and look at uh, the Hermes tradition there. So it's that kind of book. Uh, and then, again, I think the genius of the book is that it's multimedia. So you've got J. Augustus, Augustus Knapp, who was um, an illustrator and painter uh, at the time. Well, he and Manly overlapped. He was mostly in the 19th century. But um, Manly commissions these drawings of Pythagoras, of Dante, of Dante's work all these amazing things um, and and you've got those full color plates in there and then you've got throughout the book you've got drawings and other images that Nat didn't do but that Manley had come across in studying these rare books and put in to, this, to the big book The Secret Teachings of All Faith Now I, I'd like to say um, I once described the secret teachings of all ages to someone, and I think you got to be at least forty years old to get this reference. Yeah, yeah. The secret teachings of all ages. If you took all those time life books and made them into one book, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. remember all those. Oh, time I like life, that. Remember all those time life book series they put out. Sure. That is. Sure, I, that's fair. That's totally fair. I love that. In fact. Because it is these subjects that otherwise would probably not be connected. Yeah. You know, they're connected in this unique way in this series. So the chapters would be, each chapter would be like a Time Life book, you're saying. Yeah, and it's, it, I mean, it's, yeah. to me, that's what it always was. And I always thought they might have stolen that from him. <laughs> Oh, okay. I'll alert our lawyers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we well, should look. You should look into that. Um, <laughs> Stop causing trouble, Brian. I can't help it, Lauren. That's just you know. I'm a New Yorker. That's what I do. <laughs> uh, Manly is fascinating to me because he did this book. And you ready to make everybody who's a writer or a studier or a researcher jealous? How old was he when he finished this massive volume? Well, uh, by the time it was printed, he was the ripe old age of 27. <laughs> <laughs> Which just kind of infuriates me. Yeah. I didn't have a thought in my head at 27. I had but, a lot of drinks. this. What's that, bro? I had a lot of drinks in me at 27. I was not <laughs> thinking about writing the secret teachings of all ages. Right? An encyclopedic outline of Kabbalah, blah, blah. I mean, right? 27. Who does this? Yeah. But it speaks to those qualities we were talking about before. And he he breathed this stuff like we breathe air. It, it, he was just right in the center of esotericism. And just, I, I still can't get over it 27 and i and i gotta be you know honest and fair there's some things in the book that he got wrong sure 
Now, do you think that's because he was writing this, like, just out of his crazy photographic memory? Or because he may have misinterpreted stuff? Or just because he didn't have anything to reference? Oh, wow. What a great question. Um, I think it could be a combination of all those um depending on the case so for example he has um he has a piece on the jews that is that is not good uh he i am not a fan of the america stuff uh where he the secret destiny of america where um he tries to see america as this masonic founding refounding of Atlantis or something. I, I'm just not a big fan of that. Uh, in fact, it's interesting because what we're working on right now is um, is reissuing Manly Hall's works and in a new edition, we're calling it the Signature Editions. And so we thought, well, you know, we'll slap a new cover on it and go. And then we started looking, and we found exactly what you're talking about. We found things where he's referencing knowledge at the time. For example, uh, I think we're doing a dreams anthology right now, and he's got a line in there where he says, um, where he writes, blind people don't dream. So... That was the knowledge at the time. And so we have a scholar in residence, Devin Daimler, who's working. Oh, that's who you wrote. Uh, and she's like, this isn't true anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, you're right. So we're footnoting things like that. And frankly, some things we're just cutting out uh, because it represents, what, however you put it, it, it represents things that he was engaging and knowledge at the time. Now, this is this is a perennial issue for us. Is that people tend people can make Manly more than he was, and he always rejected that. He never wanted to be, and he could so easily have been one of these L.A. California people who, you know, that that there would be a documentary about on Netflix, and you'd go, oh my god. He could have gone there so easily. He had followers, but he, he, I, I say in an upcoming documentary, I say Manley was a straight line, He and he was. He was a straight line. He did not veer into this and then veer into that. He knew who he was at 19, I guess, and, and that's who he was, and he represents that beautifully in his work, but we always say Manley was a man of his time. He was... He was not supernatural. He was he was just brilliant and dedicated. But he was working with what he knew at the time. He may have known who he was at 19, but I don't think we all know who he was still. Um, that's right. the amazing thing about him. He, right. um, he could have, like you said, he very easily could have been one of those 60s um, cult gurus. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he had, a, he had people following him in Hollywood since the 20s. By the time the 60s yeah. rolled around, if he'd have gone to the LSD crowd, oh, my God. Yeah. He could have yeah. made millions and, you know, 
been this like yep. crazed guru. He rejected that. He used to tell people, he, no, 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 don't, yeah. don't follow me. It's all about wisdom. Yep. It's not about following a leader. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it, it, it is really interesting because you're so right. It was right there for him, and it was happening all around him. That's why I always mention Amy's sister, Simple McPherson, and Sister Amy, and all these others, because all the others took that, you know, took that path to fame and celebrity and wealth and, and all the other things that come with that. Manly did not. I, I love this story that he tells. I think it's in Initiates of the Flame or... Or in some publication. When he started out, he would write up these pamphlets like Initiates of the Flame, which was actually his first publication. Uh, by the way, we've got a reissue of that coming out in December, uh, the Centennial Edition, because it was done in 1922. So he tells this story about he's giving a lecture and, and someone comes up, this was been in the 20s or early 30s, someone comes up it's, oh, that was amazing. I mean, do you have anything? Do you have a book or something? He's like, yeah, here. And they're like, oh, how much is it? He's like, no, it's free. <laughs> and and he's, and the guy says, well, can I have five more then? <laughs> and Manly, in his writing, this piece, he's like, I was genuinely confused because I thought people would would take it for free and then donate back. And he's like, no, almost no one did that. So he had, at the beginning at least, I'm almost glad he had a little bit of naivete, uh, thinking that he could just give this to the world and donations would come flooding back. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, for a guy who worked on Wall Street, for a guy who yeah. had so much going from him, he really didn't have a very good um, economic sense. <laughs> Right, right. PRS, he had those uh, benefactors at the beginning, and, you know, he, I think he probably did better than we are doing now, but it was it was always a struggle uh, to keep PRS afloat, because, partly because he refused to play that game that would bring in money and donations and, and all that attention. Well, he, he could have to... he could have easily been Billy Sunday before Billy Sunday. Yeah. Um, okay. Lauren, are you familiar yeah, with Billy I know Sunday? Who that is. Oh, you don't yeah, know Billy I Sunday? Know oh, sure. no, I don't know. No. Uh, Billy Sunday was um, he, he was kind of he was an ex baseball player. Mm-hmm. In uh, turn of the cent- turn of the nineteenth to twentieth century, who became a. Uh, would you call him a traveling huckster, <laughs> um, evangelical yeah. preacher? He was Benny Hinn before Benny Hinn. Yeah, he was. He was that guy. He was Andy Griffith in Faces in the Crowd. That film. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Traveling, traveling evangelist. Yeah. Oh, you reference to a face in the crowd, written by Bud Schulberg, one of my favorite writers of all time. Oh yeah. Um, oh. Great movie too. Yes. But Billy Sunday and, and Amy, like you've referenced, they really bastardized the following at this time. Yeah. And Manley could have easily done this. Yeah. Do you think it was just naivete? 
uh, a sense of right and wrong? Or do you think it was wanting his own privacy? Oh, wow. Really interesting questions. I think it was naivete at first because he pretty much says that in that piece I'm talking about. He, he says, I was genuinely confused that why people, in, instead of donating, they would take even more free <laughs> copies of my book. Um, but he quickly, he, he was such a quick study, I, I don't think that lasted very long. So I, I think it was the latter two things you said. I think he... I think the Wall Street experience stayed with him. I don't know this for a fact. I'm just basing, I'm basing it on what I've read and heard of Manley. Uh, I think that stayed with him. Because if you read his work, there are a number of themes in his work, of course. But I think the dominant theme is anti-materialism. You know, people want it to be magic and esoterica and secret stuff. He just, for me, what I see is he's warning, warning, warning of the dangers and consequences of materialistic, a materialistic approach to life. So I think he's, you know, when it comes to like fundraising and development, I think he's probably still got that bad taste in his mouth. That's interesting. And then you the say other that. thing. Oh, I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, the other thing he did was surround himself with people who could do that. Um, so he he just wanted to read and lecture. And he, he eventually was able to set up PRS so that he could do that very thing. Yeah, well, you, you said that he was very much against materialistic things. Yeah. And that comes across philosophically, too. I mean, because he yeah. kind of preaches, don't buy into one thing. Yes. Don't hang your hat on one belief. I'm going to give exactly. you 20 other examples of a belief. I'm not telling you which yeah. is right or wrong. Although there are, there are times he does say that this is a wrong path to go down. But overall, oh, he, sure. he, he, overall he, he kind of is uh, materialistically, philosophically, morally... Don't believe one thing. Right. There's so many other viewpoints and so many other ways to look at things. Right. And we don't know what's controlling it all. That's right. That's right. And and that that is part of his genius. And it's it's still right there in our mission statement is that we're we're not partisan, is the way he put it. We, we're not going to advocate any particular path. Um, and that was, that was unusual. Because if you look at these other people who had followers, especially in the early 20th century, that's exactly what they're doing. And in fact, that still happens. Well, it's always watch. a power play. It's a, it's a power play, and we fall for it. A lot of us keep falling for it. But he he was um, I think the other piece of this was okay. We need to we need to keep our lens open to all paths that are not destructive, and and then we need to recognize change. And again, I don't I don't know any philosopher. Well, that's too dramatic. There are so few philosophers or thinkers who operate 
with by incorporating the notion of change. And it's interesting because one of our first philosophers, Heraclitus, was about that very thing. And he, anyway, Manly recognized development, that at certain points of life, you needed this and you were thinking this. And here's, here's the way forward toward wisdom from there. And then, you know, at other points in life, you need this kind of knowledge or this kind of text or ritual or whatever. So few people do that because it's so much easier to just, you know, have something stand still and then take it apart. Right. Well, it also no. would have been so easy for him to go down one path become famous for that, develop a following, yeah. and make a career out of of spouting one thing. Yeah. You right. never knew what you were going to get out of a Manly Hall lecture. That's right. <laughs> That's right. There's there's one of those videos on YouTube where, uh, I don't know, I don't know, maybe I'm thinking of the backstory here, but somebody told me this story, so I don't know if it's actually on the video, but uh, he had a secretary, I forget her name, so um, he comes in to the lecture room in the audi- the auditorium, which uh, holds about 300 people, and it was standing room only. And he starts talking, and this woman comes up to him to on the stage, and she says, Mr. Hall, the title of your lecture is supposed to be about alchemy. <laughs> and he was talking about tarot or something. And he's like, huh, okay. So he immediately switches to alchemy. (laughs) Who does that? See, and that's another thing that um, I think he gets a bad rap for, because if you look into him, the first things you're going to find are tarot and alchemy and magic. Mm -hmm. Magic, right. Very easy to write someone like like him off at that point as, oh, it's a new age book. That's right. That's right. That's why we weren't allowed to study him in, in graduate school uh, as part of a religious studies or philosophy curriculum. When, in reality, he is religious study because it's all religion. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, it, it is, and it's religion as form and function. It's not religion as institution. He, he can talk about the institutional quality of religion, but that's that's introductory, that's peripheral to him. He wants to talk about how a, a particular religion can get at it wisdom that is available to everyone, not just to the adherents of that religion. Now, this is something, I mean, you might not be able to answer this. Um, okay. But do you think you know what he believed? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, that's a great question, though. I'm glad you asked it. Um, you know, I remember there was there was a YouTuber who came in and and wanted to talk about this kind of thing, and and so I I let him, and you know, we showed him around, and he and we sat down in the library, Mr. Hall's library. He said, "Okay, now where's the secret stuff?" <laughs> and I I said, "Well." We're sitting in the library. I mean, it's a library. He's like, yeah, yeah, but where's the secret stuff? And I'm like, uh, did, did you read that article in Atlas Obscura about the secret stuff? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, listen, 
You've been listening to me talk about Mr. Hall and the Philosophical Research Society for an hour now. At what point did I say we were withholding something? At what point did I say, Mr. Hall, why would you build a library, open it to the public, and then say, there's secrets here? It's here. It's all right here. And Mr. Hall's life work was to make this available, whereas it had not been before. Because of the Masonic angle. I think that's it. You're, you're exactly right. I think that is right on. People want to assume it's a secret society that he'll give you something on the outside, but there's something only the insiders know. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a history of this, and there's a chapter in Secret Teachings about this, about the ancient mystery religions, which were, in fact, closed. Uh, and you had to become an initiate. And, of course, you're right about the, the Masonic tradition, too. But he's writing about these ancient traditions. It's right there on the page. So why is it secret? You know? Um, I, I think he used the word secret in that sense, in the secret teachings, in that it wasn't being withheld. Most of it, 90% of it, was not being withheld on purpose. It was just unknown. It was esoteric. It was hidden. Well, to the defense of people who believe he was hiding, he did openly admit he was not going to reveal Masonic secrets. Okay, I I didn't know that. Um, And he shouldn't. Um, I mean, my understanding is that he was an honorary Mason, right? Yes. I mean, he was, yeah, he was 33rd degree at Scottish Rite in San Francisco, but that was honorary. Yeah, and he said, you know, I'm not going to give away the secrets of the Masons because uh, what right do I have to give them away? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. But he wasn't denying that there were secrets, so... Well, no, in fact, because we have have that Albert, or he has that Albert Pike text uh, from early on, from like late 19th century, I think, that, uh, that actually describes the rituals. Yeah, he, um, but I mean, do you think Manly Hall was, um, religious in any way, or Hmm. do you think that someone with a knowledge like his tend not to be religious, um, due to this vast amount of knowledge, they tend to veer off from a specific religion, so to speak? Yeah, uh, yeah. That, I was going to ask you what you meant, but then you explained it. Yeah, yeah he was not a particular religion. He, um, I don't know that he ever was. The closest he comes is he tells um, he tells Annie Besant, one of the founders of Theosophy. He says, you know, and he's just starting out. He's just arrived in Los Angeles, and, and he says. You know, I'm pretty much theosophy. I'm pretty much what you're doing here. And should I just become a part of your group or or not? And Annie Besant wisely says, no, you're doing your own thing. You're much bigger than theosophy, and you should do that. So that's an interesting story, right? 
is that one of the founders of theosophy says, no, you're bigger than us. Go out and be big and grand. Well, who wants someone in their club that's better than them? <laughs> I mean, let's face it. That could be it. Yeah, could be it. <laughs> he also, he was charismatic. Uh, yeah. You know, he people were drawn to him. I love yeah. the famous bust of him. In fact, if you yeah. don't sell little replicas of that in the like gift shop there, you really should. Because I would buy one in a heartbeat. Okay. Okay. We'll take that under consideration. That could be a good sale. He hated that, by the way. Really? Yeah. Oh, he didn't it's think fantastic. He did. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's uh, when we reopen and and you leave Buffalo and Wales, res- respectively, um, well, we'll go in the library and I'll show it to you. Oh, I would love that. I, can I get my picture with it? <laughs> oh, absolutely. You, you can take his head off the pedestal and carry it around. Oh, I would too. Don't, don't you know. <laughs> don't I, encourage him. <laughs> I'm not going to say whether or not it's true, but whenever I travel, I travel with this little stuffed werewolf that I dress in whatever outfits we go to. Like when I went to Disney World, he had a Mouseketeer uniform on and... When I went to Paris, he had a striped shirt and a beret and a red scarf on. And I may or may not have photos of him on the actual busts of Roman emperors from the Louvre. Not saying that I have them, but I may have those photos. You touched them. You're not meant to touch them. I didn't touch them. Wolfie touched them. (laughs) Baron von Wolfstein. No, the manly call bust, Lauren. Have you ever seen it? It looks like um, a really stern Beethoven bust. It's awesome. Oh, the manly hall bust? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's, I don't know if you know this name, but uh, there was a famous photographer in the 30s named William Mortensen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, William. And, okay. So, yeah, he did manly hall, and that bust is based on a, photographed by Morton's. You know, another weird thing about Manly Hall is there's there's a question about his gender. Yeah. Even with a name like Manly, I don't understand <laughs> that, but yeah. what's the deal with that? I mean, I've never seen anything yeah. that can prove or even hint at the fact that he was um, intersexed or um, hermaphroditic, either pseudo or, you know, anything how did this rumor start and and is there any basis in fact there's zero basis in fact so your instincts are right but i'm really glad you broached this subject because i think this goes to what we were talking about before even though manly lived in a straight line he was so charismatic that people they would just make him into what they wanted him to be right so Uh, I I say in this other documentary that's coming out, people felt a sense of rejection when he refused to do that. And and I know what he's talking about as a teacher, not as anyone on the level of manly help, but just as a teacher. There's a certain story that students will build up around a teacher because it, it appears we have so much knowledge and we're sharing it with them, and the, the, this is the thing, they're learning in the process. So it's a very 
very uh, robust and exciting moment. And it makes you do transference, right? What the psychologists call transference. So there was a lot of transference with Manly Hall. But I know where this comes from, this, uh, this rumor you're talking about. So there's a book called Master the Mysteries done by a, an L.A. Times uh, journalist. And I want to say that this book is good. Uh, I like the book because it's heavily documented. I don't like the book because it's a Hollywood biography. <laughs> so if, if, you're do, if you're in that genre, then there are choices you're just going to make. And among those choices are going to be things like this. You know, you're going to take every or nearly every rumor and put it in the book. So, in fact, in the latest edition of um, Master of the Mysteries, Mr. Sahagan has this preface where he talks about the secret teachings of all ages being found in Osama bin Laden's cave. <laughs> okay. okay, this is utter bullshit. I mean, from what I can tell, it was an online version. Um, and anyway, no matter, he, Sahagan does this whole thing with Bin Laden standing in the cave, the breeze blowing his beard as he looks out upon the, the Afghan plain and thinks about the Western reception of Islam through mysticism. Bullshit. That's bullshit. Um, and, and so another part of that book is this notion that Manley Hall was murdered and that there was some, uh, I was going to say bizarre sexual practices, but, but there was a guy who came around at the end of Mr. Hall's life and kind of took it over. And he was, uh, he was doing these, what do you call them? Um, it, it was some scam he was running, but it involved enemas. Um, angel, angel showers or something that's not it but it's something like angel showers and he says you know that no, Sahagan says that uh, people saw this guy his name was Fritz uh, masturbating Mr. Hall and all that listen Stephen Heller here in Los Angeles the bishop of the Gnostic Church Mr. Hall's colleague for many decades says all this is wrong and he would know and um, he was not murdered Stephen Heller says none of that other stuff happened what did happen is that Fritz and his son came in and almost stole PRS right from under Mr. Hall well, and, 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 and Mr. Hall was quite elderly at the time. Yes. And yes, he was eight, 89 when he died. Yeah, and he wasn't doing many lectures anymore. I mean, there's a lot of people who believe he was suffering from dementia. And sure. it's very possible and very easy for anybody to come in and scam him at that point. Right, right. And say that not, happens to most people. Well. That's right. He was never well throughout his life. You you alluded earlier to his height, but there was also girth. He was over 300 pounds, well over 300 pounds, about six foot four. Um, 
and and you're right there aren't that many photographs of him that show that but when you see them you see this was a large man he was known he admitted to having a weakness for sweets and so he was always sneaking candies uh that and other sweet things and that produces you know all kinds of issues um and, and he was just not well and so yeah this guy and his son sweep in they insert themselves into his personal will. They insert themselves into the Philosophical Research Society. And Mr. Hall's widow, Marie, had to go to court to to save PRS and to save his estate from them. Yeah, and I mean, and, and sadly, that's, you know, all too common a story. Yeah, it really is. You know, but the, you know, like I said, the, 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 the stories about him being murdered, about him being hermaphroditic, um, it, it's it's almost like we want to make more of a mystery out of this guy, which yep. he's mystery enough, folks. We really don't know that much about him. Exactly. Dude, he's Canadian. How weird can he be? Well, I mean, that's what I was going to say. That would obviously be his, right, his, uh, yeah. his downfall is that, you know... He is a Canadian in Los Angeles, so he was probably rooting for the Kings all those years. <laughs> no, I'm really glad you brought this up, Brian, because um, it, it's it has to do exactly with what you said. You have a powerful figure, and you want to make him into something. You want to tell a story about him that reflects some of something about your own search. Well, that, it, um, it's like I said earlier, um, I had first come across him when he was referenced to be like Aleister Crowley, or Crowley, however you want to pronounce it. Yeah, yeah, perfect and, example. And what that did is it led me to who he is, right. and over time I realized he's much more fascinating than Crowley, because Crowley gets old real yeah. quick. Yeah. You know, you realize, oh, yeah, it's the same shtick for 40 yeah, years. exactly. Right. Um, Hall is actually much cooler to learn about. Granted, like I said, I'm not going to sugarcoat it or pussyfoot around it. Some of the stuff's downright hokey. Sure. But other stuff is just... It's worth listening to whether or not you're going to agree with the philosophy or be influenced by it. It's worth right. listening to a variety of topics because you get to see here's one man lecturing on so many different topics. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all really good lectures. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, this, this is one of the wonderful parts about being the president after Manley is, yeah, I remember a couple years ago I wanted to give a lecture. I was giving a lecture on William Blake. And I thought, I'm actually a literature professor. I, I do literature, philosophy, and religion. So I'm like, yeah, he probably didn't say anything about Blake. So I do some searching. And I'm, and of, sure enough, he has an article in one of the journals on Blake. And it's brilliant. And I, it's unlike any other Blake interpretation I've ever read. And there he was, you know, writing about Blake. Now, I would say, too, Brian, that there, there's kind of, this is my own perspective, but so take it or, or leave it, but I think there are two, two 
levels, two aspects is a better word to Mr. Hall. There's one where he's doing that. He's taking existing texts or traditions and he's interpreting them for the time. And and he's brilliant. There's a whole other where, and you find this especially in the journals, where he's talking as Manly Hall. So he's mainly saying, here's what I think about this, say, World War II. And both of these voices, these aspects, are, are beautifully complementary and powerful. But those are two different modes, I guess, he works in. Interpreting existing texts in unique ways, and then interpreting contemporary life in his own I, I do have a couple more questions. I know we've already crossed the hour mark, but I, I got. If you don't, I'm, if you I'm have good. a little time, I got a few more questions. I'm good, man. This is fun. All right, one. It, now, this is personal to me as an autograph collector. Why are Manley Hall signatures so goddamn expensive? You'd think he'd have signed a million books. Oh, are they? I didn't know they were. Yeah, I can't find one that's reasonably priced. Really. So, so you mean a signed book? Or an autograph of any kind of his, they go for huge money. Oh, really? You're thinking, oh. I, well, no, it's interesting because the, the reissues we're doing, it's going to be called the signature editions, and they're going to include, I mean, obviously not his signature, but a facsimile of yeah. a scan of his signature. So I feel like we're right in line on that. Um, I did not know that. Yeah, they go for quite a bit of money. Um, okay. And uh, that uh, that bugs me. Because <laughs> as an autograph collector, it's a, it bugs me. Um, okay. Two, what is... Obviously, other than secret teachings, what is yep. the most commonly asked thing of the research society in regards to Hall and his life and his work? Like, what do you get questioned about the most? Oh, what a great question. Well, let me think about that. Yeah, it's one of those things like, what do, what do people who are all over the world reaching out to you guys about? Because yeah. you know they do. <laughs> we, we get, I, I don't know that there's one that stands out, but we get, well, first of all, let me back up. One of my favorite things about being president of PRS is, is people who don't know. So back when we were open uh, last year, uh, the beginning of the year, uh, and before that, people, we're on, we're in Los Feliz, we're on a major, corner of a major, major intersection in a very residential area, so people are walking around a lot. And invariably, people will wander into our little campus and go what is this <laughs> and, and and that's my favorite thing where i get to say you don't know where you are They're like, no i thought this was closed or i thought this was something else and i'm like well let me show you the library and tell you the story of this place that's my favorite thing people who don't know now does that people ever, who, um does that ever <clears throat> translate and i don't want to make a comparison like this and don't take this the wrong way Sure. But because of your location and because of the lack of knowledge, 
Do people yeah. kind of associate yeah. it with like a Scientology type of thing? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that's what you were going to ask. Of course. And um, it's not. Folks. You know, there's a. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's interesting. When I became president in um, 2017, uh, our financial person, Aster, who's been there for 20 years, she we go to the bank and, you know, we've got to switch over the, the accounts so that my name's on them. And the teller at the bank says, oh, you're with the Church of Scientology. <laughs> no. Um, and she's like, oh, sorry. Right. You're you're a church. No. <laughs> so that is fairly common. And then I've, I've mentioned this documentary a couple of times. It's coming out. It's actually premiering on our YouTube channel, I think, in March. Uh, it's called Hollywood. And it's about the constellation of places like PRS in Los Angeles, especially uh, in the Hollywood area. So you've got uh, Stephen Heller's uh, Ecclesia Gnostica, the Gnostic Church. Uh, you've got Annie Besant's, they meet in Annie Besant's Theosophy Hall there. Uh, there's a Self-Realization Fellowship. There's, there's a bunch of stuff around here um, of an esoteric nature. And so this film, it's called Hollywood, it's about that. So there's that. Um, and, you know, that's pretty easy to, to explain. We do get inquiries from Masons um, who, who love Manly Hall. Uh, and they, we have a section, he has a section on Masonry in the library. Um, but I don't know what's happening. They used to come in groups a few years ago and then they just kind of stopped i don't know um so there there's lots of inquiry about masonry um there's um we get we get the people who uh, there was an atlas obscura article that you know atlas obscura is supposed to be you know weird stuff so someone wrote up an article about uh, we had satanic books, but we kept them under the Buddha. <laughs> like, I don't even know how that's supposed to work. Like, a statue of the Buddha disarms the power of... I, I don't even know. Um, so we still get people coming in looking for the satanic books. Which, uh, they're just Crowley. We had some Crowley. Um, mostly, I think we get people... Uh, yeah, mostly we get people who are just typical seekers in Los Angeles and elsewhere. They just have heard about us, and they want to see what it's all about. Mainly, they want to see our sacred space, our library, which is incredible. Designed, the, the campus was designed by Robert Stacy Judd, who was crazy, um, but one of those genius crazies. Uh, and so he designed it as a Mayan temple. And he was very much into Central American uh, mythology and practice. He would dress up as a Mayan priest, <laughs> for example, run around. Well, who uh, doesn't do that? Come on. <laughs> yeah, I've given you another idea, haven't I? I yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so it's mostly that. We have an art gallery now, so when we were open, we had a lot of art events. So we're actually known 
in Los Angeles as a place for art and poetry and music, which I love and is entirely appropriate. So I, I think that answers your question pretty much. You know, you see, I, I, my own personal belief is that Hall got into the Mason thing just because it was knowledge that everybody wasn't getting. And he wanted mm-hmm. to know. So it's yeah, like, that, I just want to, I want to know sense. the secrets, tell me the secrets, and then I'll go away. That's my own personal Well, it must, yeah, whatever he did, he did it right, because Masons revere him um, uh, to this day. Well, it's that bust, I mean, come on, it's so cool. <laughs> uh, what I love is across, there are two busts there on pillars in the library, and the other one is Nicholas Rorick. So I don't know if you know that name of uh, the Russian mystic and painter. Oh, I thought you were going to say Nicholas Rogue, the filmmaker. I was like, what? <laughs> well, it is Los Angeles. Oh. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what is Hall's reputation in the UK? You know, since Lauren's over there in Wales. I mean, do you get much uh, correspondence with the UK on Manly Hall? Some, some. Um, so, you know, here's the thing I should explain is that, um, after Mr. Hall died and, and this guy Fritz tried to basically steal, uh, his estate and PRS from him, that, that was so bad. I mean, um, we have board members who remember that and, and they just kind of shudder because Marie thought he was murdered or at least some foul play was involved. She launches this big lawsuit. And then there are people who are friends of PRS who are very upset at at various developments after Mr. Hall died, which, by the way, is a typical response when a powerful person dies who has a following. You find this in world religions all the time. For example, after the Buddha died, they were like, Within a year, there are like four different sects of Buddhism saying, no, he meant this and he meant that. And of course, Christianity, duh. Yeah. Um, so, so it was a really dark time, 1990 to 2000. And my predecessor, Dr. Harris, came on then. And um, it was just really bad. I mean, it, it just legally and you know, the oppression of all these arguments and anger. So he was a genius, uh, Dr. Harris. He said, you know what? We're going to go online. (laughs) So he, in 2001, he started the University of Philosophical Research and offered a master's degree in consciousness studies. And like I say, it was brilliant because every, the site itself and the idea of PRS was so contested legally and otherwise that he moves everything online, and until 2019, we were the University of Philosophical Research. Now, I mention that because you're asking about, you know, this kind of correspondence around the world. During that time, 90 to 2001, and and frankly, for about 16 years or so, until I came along in 2016, the campus was pretty much shut down. So... PRS was not really known. We still sold Manley Hall's works. We still sold the secret teachings, but the campus wasn't open that much. You really couldn't get into the library 
the bookstore was, I think, one day a week. And so we have to see these things in light of this period of our history where it was just really quiet, not much happening. And, and again, I, I uh, understand and applaud Dr. Harris's move here because, um, you know, we, we taught classes and gave degrees um, until we couldn't anymore. <clears throat> so now we're at, like starting in 2017 when I became president, we, we kind of gave birth, rebirth to the campus brought started an art put in an art gallery starting having art events etc so it's only since about 2017 this is my very long point <laughs> sorry <laughs> no it's only since about 2017 that we've been as prs that we've been kind of engaging in dialogue with with various communities and it's 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 amazing that you know we've done going on an hour and a half now and we've really just touched on his life and who he was and what he did and not getting into any specifics. So I'm wondering if you'd be game to do an, uh, a follow-up episode in a, in a little while down the road on some of his teachings and work. Oh, sure. I'd love that. Um, I really like this free and easy conversation. I think it's the best way to approach PRS and Mr. Hall. So, yeah, count me in. Oh, absolutely. And and, and I do have to wrap up because they limit us on time on these things. But, Lauren, before right. I wrap up with a few follow-up, you know, finishing up questions, do you got anything you want to throw in, anything to add, any questions? I do have a question. Um, given that he had such an interest and wide, uh, wide knowledge, what advice would you be giving to people today going through a pandemic? Ah, Wow. Well, you, that's so interesting, Lauren. Thank you for that. You know, I, when the pandemic started, I was in the middle of a series called Native American Voices of Wisdom. And I remember finishing that series by going into the auditorium and filming myself talking without any audience. So I thought the next series really needs to address the pandemic, as you're saying. And so I did a series called um, seeking Wisdom in Troubled Times. And that's on our YouTube channel. Uh, and it's me looking extremely anxious and haggard, <laughs> trying to talk about applying these lessons in this time. So not only did we have the pandemic in America, we had an administration, a unique administration, shall I say. Um, and... Um, you know, I was having a hard time. People were having a hard time. And so I tried to address it that way. Look, here are these ancient texts and contemporary texts who can help you manage your way. And I focus mainly, Lauren, on the loss of a story, the loss of a defining myth for your life. Um, and then, and this happens, of course. It happens, we, we gain and lose myths all through our lives. But now we were doing this as a planet and as a nation and country. And so I talk about it there. It, it, it's interesting too, and sorry if I'm going too long here, but um, we were talking before about things that work and things that don't. So I remember when I left PRS, um, 
closing up, knowing not knowing when I'd be back, I grabbed a little book by Manley Hall called um, Philosophy for the Sick. And I thought, oh, mm-hmm. uh, this may be useful. And I read it, and I thought, absolutely not. This is not what we need to hear right now, because it's it comes out of that new thought notion of, you know, you're pretty much responsible for your physical rights. Okay. Now, that, we know that's true to a degree, but that is not the note we want to hit when it's a pandemic. Um, I also did a, a series in the fall called The States of America. Uh, so the states of America were broken, fearful, confused, <laughs> and um, but also hopeful, uh, resilient, and uh, good. All that's on it. Yeah, and the YouTube channel is, is fantastic, people. you got to look this up. Oh, thank you. Thank you. There are some amazing lectures. Um, the, the, just, it, it, it covers so much. It does. It you will does. find some stuff entertained, to enlighten, to educate, and um, everything in between. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and I would I would especially call out Stefan Heller, uh, who was Manley's friend and colleague from the 70s to the 90s, and um, he knows Manley well, or knew Manley well, and is still going strong. And he's his he has his own playlist there. I, I would highly recommend that as a place to start if you're just hearing about Manley Hall because he references Mr. Hall. And you can all look up Manley's lectures. Um, you can watch a ton of them on YouTube. It's it, it's amazing stuff. But the last couple of questions I have for you before we before we close up today, and and this is what you believe and what Manley would have believed. Do you think is Pluto a planet? Yes or no? Oh goodness! How did you bring that up? Oh, got to watch you, Ryan. That's awful. Stop it. <laughs> As you can tell, Lauren does not think Pluto is a planet. You know, I'm going to go with Lauren on this one. Um, (laughs) I mean, we could do a little philosophy of language piece here, but but I'm just going to agree with Lauren. Okay, as Manly Hall would say, and I'm going to do it in my best Manly impression. (laughs) Looking into the sky, we realize Pluto is indeed a planet. Okay. How's that? That was not bad. Okay. He, he's fired in. It's okay. He, um, and that is not bad. No, he's got, he's got kind of that, it, it's funny because he, he, he's Canadian, but he doesn't sound it. And he's almost got that, like, that 1940s announcer yep. sound. Yeah. And it's, his voice is much higher than you expect it to be. Yes. Because he's such a big, yeah. Maybe that's why they thought he was a woman. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm just kidding. I just wanted to open that Pandora's box. People like to make things up, Brian. That's the what. That's, that's it. No, that's, if that's somebody doesn't mean, like... be, if somebody doesn't behave in a way that you want them to in society, they start saying that this is wrong or this is wrong, and you're this and you're that. So I think that's what mainly it was. Is just he wasn't behaving the way that he was supposed to, or the yeah. way that people thought he should be. And he was so mysterious, yeah. he must be keeping other secrets. Right. 
Right. He was he he just didn't have time for people's drama. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> Either that, I, I or people didn't right. want to. He, he was could, too busy reading books. I, I think it's that simple, Lauren. This interested him to the yeah. day he died, and, and he was said to at the end of his life. He was said to say, "I think uh, he said this to one of our existing board members." Uh, he said, "You know, I just want to read and write," and 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 that's why he. He ended up handing off stuff, uh, and in one case, to the wrong person. He, uh, yeah, and he left us quite a library. He left us a lot of work, yeah. a lot of material, and yeah. uh, I think twenty thousand volumes yeah. uh, in the library. Um, now, obviously, that's his collection. That's not his. No, but his output is almost that much. Well, it's, it's about two hundred texts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 amazing output. And uh, people, you got to look in look into them, read up on them because we're going to do a part two of this coming up soon. But great for now. Great. I will wrap this up because, like I said, time constraints. So I am going to sign off yeah. here, and uh, Doctor Slayer. We're going to go with that <laughs> in Los Angeles. And this is Brian in Buffalo. And with us, as always, is Lauren from Swansea. So, <laughs> Swansea, nice. From Manly P. Hall, Dr. Slayer, Brian, and Lauren, good night. Good night. Easter egg, I'm suing. <laughs>